You're listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Gustavo Neto. He is an award-winning digital strategist who unites businesses and IT teams to develop and deploy cutting-edge digital technologies that accelerate growth and profitability. He's experienced in digital sales with a reputation for building trust and relationships and delivering quality customer experiences. He's an inspirational leader, honored collaborative style, and exceptional work ethics as an NCAA Division I soccer player in the U.S. and Brazil, fluent in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. 20 years at GE, where he was part of many, many acquisitions. On today's show, we talk about how does a strategic buyer look at a company from what angles? What is the additional value of a product if it has IP attached to it? Why do acquisitions fail? If your company has only been around for a few years, how should you prepare your company to get maximum value in an acquisition and much more? Let's begin today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Gustavo, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we met through Jay, Jay's group. It's an amazing group out on the East Coast. So I want to thank Jay for making the introduction for today's interview. But Gustavo, thank you for flying all the way from Florida to Silicon Valley. I know it was specifically for this interview and for no other reason. So I want to say thank you for joining us today before any of the questions. Well, thanks for having me. And thanks, Jay, for introducing us. It was a great conversation that we have over the phone. And I've been looking to get today here and we have this conversation. Now, Gustavo, you've had this amazing life. I mean, you weren't born in the U.S. You were born overseas. You've had this incredible journey. Can you give our audience a little background of this journey of your life up until this point? Sure, Sean. The way I typically tell my story to keep, keep it short, 41 years now, four decades, I spent the first two decades in Brazil. In my late teens, I'd say from 17 to 20, I worked in an ad, ad agency and was the late 90s, boom, internet's booming. I become a web developer. I get into university my first year from high school in data programming. So I build up my career from the get-go in the technology side of things. When I was 20, I felt there's something missing in my life. And what it was, it was we had been acquired by an American organization from Florida, in fact. And the Americans would come down to the office, would have conversations, and I couldn't speak English. So I felt a little left out. And I decided to sell my car, pick up my bags, and say to my family, hey, I'll be back in about six months. Got into a flight, landed in New York City, realized that six months is not enough to learn a new language. That journey has been going on for 21 years in the U.S. So as soon as I landed in New York City, I decided to, to drop out of school in, in Brazil. I started my own company out of New York City, building websites for restaurants. So literally knocking in restaurants and say, you're not on the web, like to be on the web. So that's how I started my first business and realized there was an opportunity to go to school. I also was a soccer player growing up. I had this amazing opportunity to play Division One through a full scholarship playing soccer. Moved myself to Connecticut after five years in New York City. And then as soon as I graduated from university, I landed an amazing opportunity 
a GE where they spent 10 years of my career. And we'll talk more about that. But I think what made interesting my journey personally for myself, it was the people that I have met throughout my journey. Imagine as a 20-year-old landing a new country without speaking the language, without knowing anyone. I had sold my car. I only had $4,000 in my pocket. So it was all about meeting people, finding opportunities, staying focused on my next goal in life. And then today I've been with IBM for five years, going five years now. Just moved my family, myself to Florida about six months ago. That's, that has been kind of nutshell my, my journey to date. But what makes even more powerful is the opportunity we have, like Jay introducing us and then not knowing and never seeing you in person other than Zoom, then fly out, warm welcome by you and what, your wife. And so thanks for having me here again. Thank you for that amazing intro. So with that, I mean, you left out a lot of your career, a lot of the good stuff, which we're going to be diving into over the rest of this interview. One of the areas that you've had a lot of experience in is mergers and acquisitions. And with that, especially on our podcast, we've had so many of the entrepreneurs saying, this is my journey when I got acquired, but we haven't really talked about that strategic buyer that view from that side. So coming from the strategic buyer point of view, how do you look at a company? From what angles do you look at it to see if it's a good possible target or not? Sure. And just by the way, I left my professional side on purpose and actually learned this here in, in Silicon Valley. Meeting someone here, the first thing they ask, what's your story, right? And now we will be happy to dive into my career. So. 10 years at GE, I went through their leadership program, two years, got sent out to China, went to parts of, the, of Europe, spent the majority of my career here in the US, became a US citizen about 15 years ago. And throughout my 10 years at, at GE, I had to, 10 different, nine different roles. We get to see and do a lot in, during that time. And the philosophy of GE is about leaning to a job, assessing what the needs are for that group, being able to solve a few things, organizing things, build something bigger than yourself, replace yourself, and then move on to the next role. And, and part of that training, while G was well famous for, especially in the 80s, and I had the amazing opportunity to be led by amazing leaders throughout the leadership program, it was, we were famous of acquiring businesses and, and laning our culture or blending our culture with the business that we are acquiring, implementing our processes and, and making that company a lot bigger than it was, right? That, that was, that was the, the hope. But looking to answer your question, the strategic buyer, what we look at, number one, I think is really the culture of fit. We know why we're we buying this, why we're we buying this company. Is there a culture fit? That was from the, from the GE's perspective. Number two, are they, are they doing something that we can do, or it's going to take us a long time to do it. And then the third thing is, as we are implementing our process or we're looking to scale up this business, what comes next? Are we going to buy this company, run this company and scale the company? Are we going to buy the company? Are we going to run the company and we're going to eventually sell it? Or are there any other reasons? So I think from those three lenses, so it's, it's primarily the lenses that we look at. And of course, you go into the 
intellectual properties, all the different variables, I think. But if I could boil down to this three things, those will be it. Does that change the time of the acquisition process? I mean, well, first off, how long does one of these acquisitions normally take from searching for a company to close and that complete integration? And does that kind of differ if it's we're going to buy this, grow this, sell this, we're going to buy this, grow this, integrate it. We're going to of those three options you mentioned. The time frame of this, I've seen for anywhere from weeks to years, right? There are f- basically four major phases that you go through. There is the search phase where you actually search for the companies you need to buy for the, for the reasons I just mentioned. There's the pre-acquisition, there's the during acquisition, there's the post-acquisition. That if you look at the entire time spectrum, I think that's what the question is alluding. The search phase is where I see a lot of, a lot of time is spent. But it also, I've seen, for example, G Ventures buying companies within weeks. So it all come, boils down to answer those three primary questions and understanding, are we ready to buy? So when you buy, you have this, the way I say it is like, it's like when you're buying a car, you have more questions than answers. So if you get your, your questions answered, the quicker you can get the answers, the more aligned you are to your strategy, the easier it becomes. And if there is no conflict in between, the acquisition lasts a shorter period of time. So when it comes to weeks, is one is just the bad, is the right timing, checks all the boxes, and you just jump on it. So I've seen those. The ones that take longer is when there's the diligence that get in between, there's vanity and egos that get in between, all of that. And so in the search phase is where a lot of times get spent. And then once you, once you sign the contract, then typically you do the 24 month. And if everything goes according to plan, then you just execute that plan. But the acquisition, and I've seen honestly in years that take a lot of conversation back and forth, depending on the size. So we're talking about large scale businesses that we've acquired in the past. What about when there's IP attached to these acquisitions? How does that either add additional value, add additional problems, add additional, how does that impact everything? It impacts immensely. And the reason is, is what is the jewel that we're looking for, right? The differentiation into the acquisition. So either uh, we're looking for something that we can take and it becomes ours, or during a conversation, the company being acquired is trying to protect that and say, well, I can take a piece of it. Does it come? So there's a lot of negotiation for the IP. The IP is critical. Uh, you know, if your company is getting acquired, you better protect it, you better market it. So make your IP very visible. And I think, especially the smaller companies, sometimes don't, don't even overvalue their own IPs. But I, IP is really the crown jewel of the acquisitions. Uh, and there is a lot of time and effort, a lot of lawyers involved to protect the IP. So there's IPs of all sorts of, all sorts of kinds. I speak primarily around technology IPs. But I mean, there's a quick example of one of our businesses that we acquired back in the days called G Franchise Finance. And years later, we, we were selling the, the business as part of the large G Capital divesture. And we have built a differentiation for that business that was valued at $75 million. And what it was, was if you think about commercial bank. So every commercial bank lends money to businesses. So how do you differentiate yourself from that? So what we've built, we build a, a solution where we take customer data, put it all together, financial data, information about restaurants and franchisees that we, we used to serve, 
And then we created this geospatial solution where the restaurant owners would not only get the financing from us, but would also get access to this tool where they could see their, fi their financial information on a map. They could see their competitors, how they're doing compared to the industry. So we packaged that as an IP and the CEO during the sale mentioned to our IT organization that had built the solution. That was a differentiation as part of the, the sale of the business. And that was treated as an IP on itself, which trademarks on the name, the way we build the, the code, the way we're managing the application, the way we're serving the customer. So there's all different parts of the IP that was well packaged, but again, promoted as part of the sale. We talked about the IP, but what about the overall analysis of the acquisition of how it has that potential for growth after that target company has been acquired? How do you go about thinking either the models or, or that for your team when this target, if we acquire them over the next few years, we can grow at this much, this pace, maybe exit by selling, or this is how much value is going to bring to this company. How do you go about looking at potential for the company post-acquisition? GE, the teams that looked into the strategy of the industry and deciding, especially GE Ventures and other groups that would look into which portfolio company should we be looking at and including our portfolio, would primarily go with the mindset of, look, we need to understand the industry. We need to understand the trends of the industry. We need to understand where we want out of this industry, how we're positioned against the industry. And then based on that analysis, understand what potential opportunities we can create or add on to our existing portfolio. So from a strategic standpoint is looking at our position in the industry. And there's famous saying from, from Jack Welch, which is kind of what led the school of acquisitions in the history of GE, where he always said, if we can run this business successfully, if we can be number one, let somebody else run the business better than us. All I'm saying is it's, it has to be aligned to a strategy. It has to be aligned to where you're heading. You have to know what you want. And then if you go into the how we do the analysis, then you have all sorts of internal processes that you follow. Then you have specific teams. So it is definitely a team sport. So when you talk about an M&A team, it's amazing because there's different phases and and it goes through like some sort of a manufacturing facility. They go from one division, one group to another in different areas of, of analysis. And then we have the typical the one pager view of the industry and why it makes sense to acquire this business. And then it gets into the, of course, the, the bottom line, which is the financial analysis to say, is there, we call the white space, is there a white space in this industry that by acquiring this company, we're better positioned to win that white space? And say the acquisition goes positive, you've acquired the company. What about the preparations to onboard? Because they might have a lot of the same people that your team has, and, or a lot of people might be displaced, or the cultures might not be there. How is the preparation done? What does that look like? How long does it take? I'll talk about an example of, of an integration and in acquisition that we've done successfully. The preparation is done through, again, teamwork, various groups focus on specific things, but a set of leaders looking at the broader opportunity. Primarily, 
culture fit. At least for us, GE was very specific on culture blended uh, teams. Typically, we go into HR involved in the process, putting an HR lead all about human, human resources, human alignment. Then we have teams across the operations to understand how the business operates. And then we have a process that we call the change acceleration process. I was fortunate to be trained in that process. All the leaders or people who were going through the leadership training, whether, whether it was in my case in IT or in sales or in different functions, we got to be trained and understand how the process works. So you, you need to understand the entire process, understand where you fit into that process and, and add value within your, your role or within your, your scope of work. But what the change acceleration process does is it gives you a rule book to follow step by step into areas that you're going to look from, from HR to people, to culture, to operations, so on and so forth. So it's uh, the acquisitions that I've seen successfully are the ones have a very thorough process that people understand, people follow through. And when it comes to the, the acquisition itself, what we typically do is to identify talent within the new culture and continue to give them leadership. So it's now you don't acquire a company, dump your leaders and say, now we take over. So it has to be a well thought out strategy, leadership, working with leadership, identifying talent throughout the organization, creating lots of uh, opportunities for the coaches to interact, want, learn, learn from each other. Only time can tell whether things work or don't, but I think the organization has a lot to say, a lot to do to create an, uh, and foster an environment where people can connect and the cultures can actually blend. With that culture's blending, Say a startup is about to get acquired. This is the first time the founders have had a, a huge success. I mean, they've struggled for years. During that acquisition process, what is normally the biggest challenge, biggest problem that they're facing or question they have about the process when working with a strategic buyer? There, I think the biggest problem typically is the, the expectations, right? So meeting the expectations of both sides, that's number one. Expectation leads to frustration if they're not well communicated. That's number one. So that's where the, a lot of the back and forth goes. The other problem, and there's I think two more problems that I would allude to that I see when unsuccessful acquisitions happen. It, it is the, the, the lack of focus on the people and the culture. It is also the, I would kind of boil everything down to lack of communication transparency. Transparency and communication in areas that you actually can tell. And of course, there are things that you, for various reasons, especially when you're dealing with a public company, for certain things you can't really share as a leader. But being upfront to, to the expectations through communication, to making transparent, or because you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people's emotions and expectations. And I personally say this because my background has always been the service side of, of business. So I haven't worked for a manufacturer, a, a company that had physical products, although the, the industrial side of GE, of course, we had the big machines, we call them, the big, big products. But on the service side, on the bank, and now in the technology space, in the service side, it, it's all about the people. The mistakes I see and the problems we usually face is when new leaders come in 
they want to embed their own processes. They want to, their own way of doing it. And then somebody else gets promoted to a certain, and then it's not prepared for that role. Then there is a, of course, lack of communication into what the actual strategy and the expectations of that business is. And the larger the business, the more prone you are for miscommunication. That's what I was really proud of the things I've seen and done at GE because we had very thorough processes. We had, you know, great leaders that were experts when it came to acquisitions. During these acquisitions, there's normally some encouragement for the team to stay on the top people, the C-level that they say it's the startup, the founders. What are some of the terms? What are some of either in the contracts or some of the incentives to keep them motivated, to keep them to stick around for a few years at the new company after the acquisition? And, and does, does it normally work or do they go off on their own anyway? This is the big, it depends sort of answer, right? It really changes from acquisition to acquisition, from negotiation to negotiation. To me, acquisitions boil down to two things. There's an art side of it and there's the science side of it. The art is the, the whole understanding strategically, meeting people, understanding you know, the industry, where you're heading. There is an art to that, right? That you need to, to be able to articulate what you want, be able to position the acquisition for within your, your board of directors and, and your leadership. When it comes to the science is the actual doing things and how you do things. And, and that's when vanity comes in. And that's when you see people like, but I want more than, than that, or here's what I'm expecting. So I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to that. I couldn't point out exactly the, the here are the terms, but typically is there is the, the, the cash out up front, which everybody's looking for. And there is the retainer where you negotiate a period of time. Typically, I see like three years, sometimes even five years. So when it comes to, if I were to talk to someone that's being acquired, I think it's more of a asking themselves questions. Is this a business that I just want to sell and get out and cash out? Or there's still a broader vision that I want to stick around and lead towards the vision. I want to get acquired and be part of blaming the cultures because I still value my culture. And just to give you an example, I've seen an acquisition where the company was acquired and the culture was not even considered. So there's expectations from the leaders were met probably financially, but then there's expectations from, from leaders where the, they were still undecided what to do next in their career. Because think about someone that works for 10, 15 years doing one thing, or even if a startup that's been around for five, seven years. You putting your mind, your soul and everything into making your decisions and running the, the way you do and create your own culture. Then comes somebody else, get, acquires you, and then going to try to implement the processes and go the, going to say, hey, I have a change acceleration process that you're going to go through. So people's emotions get in between the, and typically when people miss the lack of the result they're looking for, that's when you start seeing things going south. And in this particular example, I've seen leaders trying to figure themselves out. So they're just waiting for their term to cash out. And then you see people just disappearing because people can only take so much. In an acquisition, what are the types of people at the acquiring company? I'll answer the question with something I learned from a leader 
a G and he became a good friend of mine. I can't even call him a mentor of mine, but he came in from outside, joined G as a leader. And his, his mandate was to land a team and really shake up the entire business. Part of the, his portfolio is also acquisitions that we have made. And the way he described, he said, there's three types of people in every organization that you land, whether you're acquiring the business or you're putting yourself in the organization. Type of people, number one, these are the innovators. These are the people that are going to embrace the, the change. They're going to jump in and say, how can we make this better? The second type of people is naysayers, is the, the people that will question you. They're going to be feeling sorry for themselves. They may be driven by fear. These are the folks that you need to watch out for and not necessarily come and jump in and get rid of them, but do it through assessment of, are, are they going to be on the same page as you or are they not, not worth the time? And the third type is what it calls the, the must-haves. These are people who really know their, their craft, they run their operations, they run whatever responsibilities they, they have to really help you run the business because you, you have to come in First of all, run the business, continue to run a business, and then innovate the business, and then change the business at the same time. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's another, but it really, I think all, everyone fits in one of those three, three categories. So with all the acquisitions that you've been a part of or heard about or have had mentors that have, taken, that have been involved in, why would an acquisition, what are some of the possibilities of one failing? What would be some of the the causes, the reasons behind that. I think it comes again down to expectations not being met as top priority. Number two, I think it's lack of communication transparency. And number three, not necessarily in disorder, but unclear strategy as to why this company is being acquired and how the acquisition is actually happening. If you maybe why you're acquiring, maybe you have those expectations. But at post acquisitions, then it's not really what, what you were expecting, but even in the how you handle it. And then you, ha you don't have the right experts, the right leaders to make it happen. That's when you see failing. And what have been some of your key learnings, your key takeaways from all these experiences in mergers and acquisitions? I think that the number one thing, Sean, is leadership by its raw definition of leadership. And one may say different things. I think if you, uh, if you ask a hundred people, the different the definition of, of what leadership is, we're going to have a hundred different answers. But to me, and what I learned at GE was leaders show up. Leaders show up prepared. Leaders show up with the outcomes in mind, number one. Leaders show up not knowing everything, but knowing that they depend on people to get things done. And then leaders create the environment for people to be successful. The ones that I've been, been part of and that I've, the ones that I've seen su happening successfully are the ones that leaders show up and saying, here's what we are, what, the reason why we're in this business. This is the expectations we they create the energy, the excitement around it. They made it very crisp and clear, the purpose and the intention, and then how they actually depend on people to execute. They present a clear path and a plan of what, what's going to happen, but not necessarily how it's going to happen because they depend on the people and the how. And, and then lastly, they communicate and, and create a transparency and create that environment for people to be successful throughout the process. So looking at it from a founder of a startup, 
say he wants to or she wants to possibly get acquired in the next year, maybe two years, how should they go about preparing their company in order to get the maximum value? I would say number one thing is make it very clear what you want out of this acquisition. Do you want to just get acquired and get out? Do you want to stay in it? Do you want to grow with the company? Make that crisp and clear as to the result you want out of the acquisition. Second, what I would say is as you go through the process, communicate your intent, communicate your expectations verbally, put that on the contract and make, make that even more clear what the intent is and your, your expectations. And then thirdly, the, to get the most out of it, I would say use outside resources to help you value what you have built, identify your intellectual properties, identify even the way you run the business. I think a lot of the founders sometimes take things for granted, especially, and I've seen companies where they build an amazing team, amazing processes that they don't call processes, but they just have the process. They have agility. They have ways of doing things that large organizations and companies acquiring businesses wish they had. So if you're able to identify what, what those things are and be able to package and market as part of the acquisition, naturally, you're going to be more valued by the company acquiring you and you automatically will be creating more tangible, even assets to be included as part of the negotiation. When the company that's being acquired and the company that's acquiring come together, maybe other than just price itself, are there any things that really seem to come up quite a lot when they're negotiating either the terms or negotiating the offer or just having that conversation of, you're going to acquire us? I think what I see coming up the most, most often is the commitments from both sides, making that's very clear. Like this is where I was, we're coming together. These are commitments that I'm making. This is a commitment that you are making and how are we going to word that as part of the contract and how we, we all going to stay behind those commitments to make sure they happen. But the commitment to me is the kind of the third step. So if you have absolutely certainty and understanding of the reasons why you, you're getting acquired and second, the intent and the purpose as to why you want to get acquired. And then I think third is the commitment that you're willing to put forth in order to get acquired and then to be, to make the, the acquisition as successful as possible. And you've already shared some little bits and stories along the way, but can you go deeper into maybe an acquisition that you were a part of over your career? Sure. There's a, there's acquisition. There's actually a divestor, which I think to me was one of the greater experience. So I think it was 2016, 2017, G Capital announces to the world that we're going to be divesting $500 billion in assets. At that time, we were probably the largest commercial bank that there was for certain here in the US. And it was an email that comes in at six in the morning for, for all the employees. And we're like, what does that mean? Right. So either I saw leaders and people just saying, I'm out of here. And I decided to stick around with some of the innovators, I call it, that I wanted to embrace the opportunity and learn from the opportunity. So I was reporting to a CIO. So the perspective from us was this particular business, so $500 billion in 
no assets spread across, I would say probably about 12 different businesses. We get assigned, different CIOs get assigned to different businesses. We get assigned to one business that was $40 billion. And the expectations from the company acquiring said, look, we're, we're going to acquire this business and we want to protect the data. We want you to manage the data throughout the acquisition. And then post acquisition, we need to, you to help us move the data into the, the new infrastructure that we're going to build out from scratch. So for that particular acquisition, my role is very defined within the T way of looking at the acquisition, supporting the CIO. And what we've done was we partnered up with an outside consultancy that came in that was, was actually hired by the company acquiring it, implementing the processes. We had our own due diligence internally uh, from a data standpoint. It was about creating a strategy of migrating the data over, protecting everything around it. And while we work day to day on the business side to have a, a complete alignment on how the, the new business is going to be run and how is this data that's being stored somewhere eventually is going to be led and used by the new business model. So that, that was a, an interesting opportunity to see that happen and be part of that group. I didn't sit until the very, very end, but it was, it was interesting conversations and work that we've done intensively throughout that journey of that acquisition or that investor in that case. Going through that, how is it different from your point of view from an employee when it's a, you're part of a company that's being acquired versus being part of a company that's being, or a division that's being sold off? How is that different for that employee? To me, if it's a division, typically the division is very clear, the intent, the purpose in which is, is being spun off or being acquired. Typically, why? Because that division doesn't make sense to be there anymore. And there's, there's more clarity on that. When the entire business is worth, there's many, many different moving parts. So you, there's bigger questions to be answered. And then going back to the, the experience when you are in the actually side of being acquired is, is, is really expecting communication to say, what are the things we actually can do to prepare? When can we get the job, job started? Do we need to have more strategic conversation? Do we need to more execution plan sort of discussion? And a lot of people talk about the strategic side of things, which I don't want to say it's easier. It's just as complex. And again, there's the art and science. When it comes to putting an execution plan in place and building the how, that's when you got to bring a bunch of teams together, moving parts together to, to figure that out. That I, I think is got to, you know, it gets really exciting when it comes to the execution, but not, not having a plan in place, then your execution may fail. And for all of this that you've done over the last 20 years since coming to the U.S., how have you been able to stay focused this whole time? Why not after a year or two just say, Hey, I've tried it. I'm, I'm going to go back to Brazil. I'm going to go play football and just hang out. What's kept you motivated? What's kept you focused here 20 years? That's an interesting question, Sean. Thanks for, for that. I think going back to my childhood, the, the way I've always handled myself as a, as a soccer player, football player, it was the excitement of embracing the unknown. I think number one, it was getting to a territory or doing something that I, I, ha I haven't had the opportunity yet. And so I always embraced the learning process, learning new, uh, now about people, learning about new things. I think if I 
draw a line alongside of it with technology. I think technology kept me motivated because it's always changing. That's the exciting, exciting, you know, exciting part of technology. It's always moving. And if you stand still for a little while, you lose track of it. Then if I were to boil down to, to me personally of achieving goals that I set to myself is number one is always have a absolutely clarity of what I want as a result of what I was trying to do. Whether it was year number two that I understand there's an opportunity to go and play soccer and get an education. Well, how do I do that? I didn't, I didn't know the how, but I had an absolute certainty of what I want as an outcome. It was, I, I, I'm going to get a scholarship. I had people saying, this is practically impossible. There's over a million players competing from one single scholarship in the US. A million players around the world trying to have that scholarship. So what do I need to do to win that? And having absolute clarity that I, I know what I want as an outcome. That was number one. Number two, once understanding that if I'm here today and in order to get there, there's a big gap in between, create a discipline that what are the things that I can do every day? And there's a sentence of a coach and most, most soccer coaches use this sentence. I don't know who belongs it to, but what do you do when no one's at, is watching? So to me, it was always, I'm by myself. I, need, I don't need to please anybody other than myself. I can share the successes and the failures with my family and the close friends that I built. But if I don't get up and do things myself, nobody else would do it for me. So I think the discipline of waking up every day and finding motivation on the, and enjoying the process, enjoying the learning, the making, and driving yourself to fu fulfill based on, on the day-to-day, -day, on the activities, on the execution, but having a very clear, you can call it a strategy or a plan, or I call it just a, a go in mind. That was number two. And I think the last thing it was, it was about the people. It was about the excitement of, I mean, you think about you're 20 years old, from 20 to 25, leaving New York City, working all sorts of jobs, while building my business, working restaurants, going, going to school. And it was about the people I met and the, the always telling myself, there's always another human being out there that if exactly what you want, that you're already in the making, you have the discipline, and if exactly what you ask, people help you. So to me, this is a, something I try to pass on to my kids uh, and to people that I work with. Say, if you don't make it clear what your ask is, people won't know. But if exactly what you want, and if you're really working for it, and if you believe that people are great people, and I think there's great side of humans that has kept me motivated throughout these years. And I'm excited for the next 20 years or even more. So in the past 20 years, future 20 years, sounds like every challenge that came about, you took it head on and just kept going. But there had to have been some struggles on the way. You had to have discovered some vulnerability. What was it? What were some of those moments in this journey where you went, wow, and maybe how'd you grow from them? Sean, this is a powerful question. And I think it's equally important to talk about the successes, but the struggles, because what makes us humans is it's, it's failing and learning from, from the failures. The first one that comes to mind, I'm a senior year in college. I'm about to graduate and essentially I'm getting to the, to the destination of what it was a dream till then. So think about five years before that, 
it was just a dream to be at an American university, playing soccer, getting paid to play, meeting a bunch of people and just having the time of my life. But as I'm approaching senior year and graduation, well, actually in my senior year approaching graduation, you start asking yourself, what's next? So I, I reached the end of my destination and I couldn't see anything past that. So what happened? Depression. So first time in my life that I thought, I, I mean, I was always the happy guy. I talked quite a bit for, for those who know me. I always try to find a motivation and try to discipline and I'm heads down focus. For the first time I'm dealing with a situation that I wake up in the morning and I can't get out of bed. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. And I'm looking and asking myself, why am I feeling this way? I've got, I'm healthy. I'm about to graduate from school. I have an entire life in front of me and I couldn't get out of bed. So a couple of times I stayed home crying and feeling miserable. Again, no one else to help you. So my roommates are questioning like, why, why are you staying till late? Are you okay? Are you okay? And if you're ashamed of telling somebody because you don't know how to deal with that situation. So long story short, thanks to Sacred Heart University and then a person that I love dearly, her name is Lucy Cox. And she's now a very close friend of me and my family. But essentially, I went up to the student leadership group and I said to her privately, I said, I don't know what's going on. So immediately she you know, understood I was in depression, brings me to the nurse. Then there's a psychology and staff and I get treated. Within three months, I graduate and come out of the situation. So that was the first one. I think the second one, which I think I started understanding patterns, is every time I didn't have something to work towards, even it's far, far into the distance, but if I didn't have that clarity of what I need to work on, whether it's personally, professionally, or any other any area of my life, every time I didn't have that, I felt lost. So in feeling lost, meaning... You start getting distracted and you start doing a bunch of stuff. And then if you don't complete anything, and then all of a sudden you start questioning your abilities and you say, well, but I came all the way here, right? And I'm sure, especially the pandemic made a lot of people realize you came all the way here. Success after success. Yes, you stumble here and there, but you got up and kept on going. What, what is going to stop you? What, what's going to stop you now? So you feel lost. You start questioning yourself. And then, one thing leads to another. And, and that feeling, when I start understanding that pattern and then what hits me, I've been able to stop, recalibrate, understand the clarity of the goals, and then be able to create the discipline that I need, organize it, and continue on. So it goes back to, I think, it brings together, of course, the years of experience, the more experience you get, the more comfortable and more confident you get in your abilities. I think that's number one. Number two, I think the training, and I do a lot of parallels. So whether I'm, I'm on stage speaking with people or two people, whether it's in a small group, sharing experience with people, or even the way I lead my teams, I do always a parallel of soccer as a, as a sport, as a team sport of, you know, landing a new team that you don't know anybody, but creating a, a team goal. But then individually, you do the parallel with technology to say, hey, if I know what problem I so you know, I'm solving, it's easier to understand what tools I need in order to solve that problem. But you need to have a going mind. You need to have clarity of what you really, really want. And I think have a clear understanding of what massive actions you can take in order to get what you 
what you want out of, out of life or any other area within your life. This has been a very impactful interview. Gustavo, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, any websites, any of that, what's the best way to go about find out more information? Sure. And there's two sides of Gustavo. There's the B2B side of Gustavo. Today, I provide services. I'm an employee and a proud IBMer. So I'm a service provider to IBM on my day job. And I love what I do. I build my career in technology for the past over 20 years, I'd say, because it started back in Brazil. So there's the B2B side. So that typically I keep within uh, the scope of my work, but essentially I provide technology experience to companies that need to scale and they want to use technology in order to lead programs and projects and create new opportunities for business through the use of digital technology. There's the B2C side, which is I've, I've been spending quite some time now which to me is the opportunity of taking this 20 years of experience and sharing with ordinary people. So I believe, and I've seen the results of applying the ecosystem thinking and the ways large organizations think, how they create strategies, how they look at trends of technology, how they solve problems, how they create execution plans, how they drive transformation, bring this to people so they can transform themselves. And Sean, we're living in a world now that it seems chaotic. It seems there is so many things that's out of our control. And then one may say, it doesn't seem, it is. I think it's all about perspective. Because on the other side, we are living in one time in history that probably have more opportunities than any other time in history. We know more about the human brain the past 10 years than we've known since the beginnings of time. So technology is advancing industries, advancing everything, including people's job. So people can look at, hey, this technology or that technology might eat up my lunch and might take my job away. And guess what? It probably will. So you have two options. Either you be like me on that bad and suffering and ask yourself, why me? Why am I depressed? Or why, why is it going to take these things away from me? Or you get up and do something about it. So this is something that I'm really, really excited because I created a course called Your Digital Transformation, helping people to embrace and understand technologies, understand how large companies think, look at trends of technology, how people can embrace technologies and define how they can apply this to their lives today, to their careers, to their small businesses or anywhere else they want. So if they want to find out more about me, I'm building things on my own platform called gustavonetto.com. So you can learn a little bit about my story there. And then little by little, I'm posting articles and I'm posting information about not only the course, but also other things that I'll be coming up with. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. Please go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Check it out. Connect with us on all our social media channels at the Silicon Valley podcast, whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, and connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. Or if you want to find out more information on myself, what I'm up to. So my focus is investment banking, mid-market, mergers, acquisitions, growth capital, and secondaries. Please connect with me on LinkedIn if you have any questions about that. And with that, I also want to thank Hanhai, who allowed us to use their facilities for the recording today. They have many great facilities throughout Silicon Valley. 
please contact them at hanhainvestments.com. Also, I want to thank Jay once again for making the introduction. And with that, Gustavo, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, everyone else for, for your support. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.